Hello, and welcome to the first episode of A Jewish Life. I'm Rabbi Boris Dolan, Rabbi of Congregation Dorche Emet in Montreal, Quebec, and I'm excited to welcome you today to our new podcast, where we will be exploring diverse stories and ideas of Jewish life through interviews and conversations with community members, leaders, and all those with a story to tell. We're based in Montreal, Quebec, and we'll begin with this unique Jewish city, but plan to move beyond as the project grows. In this most traditional of Jewish communities, we hope to be a voice of diversity and a communal strength that is based on both what we share in common and what makes us different, learning from the stories of not just those who are well-known, but also the lives and experiences of individuals such as yourself. Through this process, we will look at modern Jewish history, faith, spirituality, identity, and activism, helping us all grow stronger as individuals and as a community. Everyone has a story to tell. Now, we live in a quickly changing Jewish world, and I believe that if we want to stay strong and relevant, we have to start from the ground up, hearing about what brought you to this place, what connects you to Jewish community and tradition, what are the blessings and challenges which you've experienced on your journey so far, and where do you think you and we should be headed as we look towards a better Jewish future? A Jewish life has a simple goal, but I think that it's an important one. We want everyone to be proud of not only what makes them Jewish, but more importantly, the unique way that they see and can make a difference in this world. As we hear people share their lives with us, we participate in a unique kind of learning. This is one that allows us to see ourselves in the experiences of others and to gain new insights into ideas and issues in our own lives. These stories, like all stories, are a natural path for us to make connections and find meaning for ourselves. With the life stories that you'll hear on A Jewish Life and through listening to the journeys of others, I hope that we will all find our own place in the greater web of our community. For this first episode, I'm honored to share my interview with Jack Wolofsky. Jack is a longtime member of Dor Shamet and a lifelong Montrealer. As a theologian and as a scholar, he's always willing to take his own path, and he works to inspire others to be honest in their beliefs and their practices, living up to the values of his socialist Yiddishkeit-filled upbringing and a strong connection with what he calls religious humanist values. He remains an active leader in the Reconstructionist movement, and he's an activist both inside and also outside of the Jewish community. Professionally, Jack has worked as an engineer and builder and is currently working on projects bridging his social values and his engineering know-how as he slowly makes his way into retirement. Jack has a fascinating story. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jack Wolofsky. So welcome, Jack. I'm happy to have you here as our first guest on this inaugural episode of A Jewish Life. And I know that you have a fascinating story and a lot of thoughts about our Jewish future, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. But I wanted to point out, since this is our first episode, that the spark for this podcast actually came from a conversation that we had a few months ago over lunch at the Snowden Deli, where you were sharing a bit of your story and talking about where you think we're headed as a community. And I enjoyed so much hearing your story that I uh, started reflecting on what it would be like to have some sort of forum for other people in our community and in Montreal to share their story, and hopefully for all of us to have a chance to reflect on our own Jewish identities and where we're headed as a Jewish community. So thank you for that spark of an idea, and uh, thank you for helping create this podcast. As we say in French, il n'y a pas de quoi. 
In a moment, I want to hear about your upbringing here in Montreal, but I thought we could start with maybe you sharing a bit about what you know about your ancestors, where they came from. Are there any stories or memories that have been passed down to you and that are an important part of your, your Jewish identity? Well, I know that my grandparents, uh, I, I'm mixed breed. I'm half Russian, half Polish. My maternal family came from Russia and my paternal from Poland, but they got together. I, what I know of my grandfather is that he was the son of a rabbi. He went to yeshiva, but his father died when he was an early age. I think he was nine years old. And uh, he had to go and work to support himself and his brothers. Um, he eventually, his older brother came to Canada first and brought him here. And that was in the year 1900. And my grandmother was pregnant with my father at the time, so she couldn't make the trip, but she arrived with my father six months later, so that's 1900. Hmm. Uh, so um, my grandfather got into a fruit store and was running a fruit store. And uh, at one point, and the joke in the family, which I heard often, is that my father, father was responsible for starting the Kinderadler. Because he's, he was seven years old, playing with matches in the back of the store, started a fire, and with the $5,000 insurance which my grandfather got, he started the Canada Rodler. Oh my gosh. He, so that, that was a Yiddish newspaper here, here in Montreal? Yeah, that yes. was the first, first paper to actually cater to the new immigrant Yiddish-speaking a community which was developing in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather felt that it was very important to do this in Yiddish, uh, as that was the lingua franca of all of the new immigrants who had started to come at that time. Yes. So is this a story you believe? or? No, it's supposed to be true. It's, uh, I believe it, but it's it said as a joke that yes. it's my father that started the Canada Rodley, uh -huh. not my grandfather. So then, of course, you grew up speaking Yiddish. This was your first language? or um, No, not really, but I, my, we lived with my maternal grandparents, and they communicated in Yiddish. Mm -hmm. So I was bilingual. Yiddish with my grandparents, English with my father and my mother. Okay. But we were sent, we were sent to, a, to the JPS, the Jewish People's Schools, to be educated in Yiddish. And uh, this was a little bit against my grandfather who wanted us going to the Talmud Torah because we would get more of a religious training at mm -hmm. Talmud Torah and my mother rebelled against that. She was yes. more of a labor Zionist uh, Politician uh, uh, member, mm -hmm. and that's how she met my father. Wow, okay. Uh, well, she met him, this is a long story. Please. <laughs> In uh, 1917, the Jewish Legion was being formed, 
and uh, they were going to be trained in Windsor, Nova Scotia, because there were a large contingent of Americans that they wanted to attract to be part of the Jewish Legion. United States hadn't entered the war yet, and so the training was set up in Canada, and there were a large number. My grandfather, of course, in the paper, both in the Yiddish paper and the English Canadian Jewish Chronicle, uh, had ads saying, if your blood is hot for your Jewish ancestry, now is the time to come and uh, sign up for the homeland in Israel. And uh, even though my father was not quite yet 17 years old, uh, and my grandmother said, no, you can't go, he took a train from downtown Montreal, tramways actually, to Montreal West Station to get on the train to Halifax, Mm in a way that his grand, his father would not see him and keep him away from the train. Wow. So, But my mother was there to see off a couple of her friends who were underage and had joined the, wanted to join the Legion. Mm-hmm. So he, she was introduced to my father at that point. And that's a true story. <laughs> that's not the usual way of meeting, but it, no, but <laughs> a very nice it story. Was, uh, it was an important yes. uh, meeting. So, thinking of your childhood here in Montreal, uh, obviously, yeah, you, I'm sure you had too many experiences to share. But were there some experiences, or the way that your parents raised you, the Yiddish Yiddish-filled culture that you were part of, that really influenced who you are today? Or can you think of any specific no, stories the, or experiences? I think it was the whole ethos of where I was. We lived on Esplanade. The Jewish library was down the street. Um, I worked, I went with my father to the offices of the Kinderadler. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hotbed of discussion of Jewish problems, of Jewish commitments. Uh, I'd see uh, writers walking past our house and they would stop because I was Here's Shmulovsky's grandson, and I was always greeted. They'd see me in the Kenderadler, they'd see me at the library. And so this life was my youth. Uh, uh, Melech Ravitch, uh, Rachel Korn, uh, Ida Mazi, um, they, Yudyut Siegel, uh, Rabinovich, uh, these were all people who were writers, creators, and they all knew me and I knew them. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious li- I mean, shul life was alien to me. I didn't go to shul. My father didn't go to shul. So your family didn't belong to a synagogue? No. No. Okay. My grandmother, Rosh Hashanah and Gim Kippur, she went to shul. Uh-huh. That was her her thing, um, and I'd visit her there. Uh, but again, it was only to visit her, not to mm-hmm. not to partake. Now, your friends, your peers, uh, as you were growing up, were they in this this world with no, you, or they, were was, they more religious? Were they what, what kind of life did they have? I don't think they were religious, and I don't think they were involved Jewishly. Uh-huh. 
I mean, I'm talking of schoolmates. I went to Folkschule up to a, a grade three, and to be very honest, I was supposed to re repeat grade three because I just hated Hebrew. I hated my Hebrew teacher, Motelosier. I'm using a name here, but it's his name. He's no longer around. Uh, I can just, I, I picture him yelling at the class, shake it, you know, and going around with the ruler and hitting you on your knuckles. And I just couldn't take that. So mm -hmm. uh, I absolutely, so my mother took me out and I started going to Mount Royal School. Mount Royal School, you know, people were there. This was the time of the Depression. People didn't have green lawns in front of their home. They uh, lived in very tight quarters. Uh, but they ended up going to Barambing and, and then from Barambing to McGill because all the fathers who were cutters and pressers and uh, uh, in the needle trades, they saved so that their kids could have a better future than they had. Um, but to say that they had a truly Yiddish, Jewish, it was there, but not committed in the way that I felt I was. Mm -hmm. It was a different type of commitment. Uh -huh. so, so in this world of Yiddishkeit and uh, Yiddish and non-religious Judaism, did you know what you wanted to do when you grew up? Was there a sense that you, oh. were, you were definitely going to head down the path of your, your, your parents or other people in your community? Well, it was a very funny thing. I... Uh, my maternal grandfather, till he passed away in 19th, was, had been in the manufacturing, had his own company in the Ukraine. And when his sons in the 1912, 1910, uh, my grandmother said, my sons are not going to serve in the Tsar's army. And she sent my grandfather to Canada with her, my two oldest uncles. And uh, he uh, stayed, uh, she stayed, she sold his business. And he came here and he worked for the CPR as a tool and die maker. But he had a, equipment in our basement. And so that was my introduction to machinery and equipment. Mm. And when I'd go down to the Kennedy with my father, I, I had the feeling of being involved with the equipment and the, the printing presses and the linotype machines and everything which had to do with production. So I always felt that I was going to be in the paper and my sister, who spoke Hebrew and Yiddish and French and English and had, was an editor at the McGill Daily, my grandfather looked to her to come into the paper. My, grandfa my father predeceased my sister coming of age and myself, and so there was a, a departure from the Canada Radler. 
and it didn't work that way. But I still went into engineering, and that part of that part of my my desires were there. And I'm, I guess I still practice as an engineer. <laughs> yes. So as you went off to become an engineer, as you went off to university, did you stay somewhat active in the Jewish community, or was this something oh, that came later in life? Uh, no, no. Uh, when I went off, this when I went off to University of Illinois, I experimented. I, I went to Baha'i meetings. I I sang in the choir at a. Uh, Christian church. Uh, you did? I ate wow. me- well, we, we I sang in a choir, which then sang on one Sunday in a Christian church, and at the same time I was in the Hillel choir. Yes. So, um, and and went to Hillel. Uh, so it was all mixed up and trying to say, well, what what is the differences where do we go where what's what's this all about what's that all about there wasn't too many muslims around at that time it was not it was christian as i say baha'i and uh, and of course unitarian and humanist but um not jewish humanists uh, i felt that uh, unitarian was mostly heading towards humanism. Um, those were my my boots, my, my commitments at college, looking around. So was there, was there some experience that brought you back to Judaism, or was this something that felt, took a I lot of time? Never felt, I never felt I was not Jewish. I never felt it was learning more of what was happening. And uh, saying, okay, what, where do we learn? What do we, or what have they learned from us? Where are we? What, what does this all mean? Sort of where, where does one end up, or how does one end up? It was always a questioning of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, this questioning of theology and of faith and of uh, Jewish identity took place early on in your life in oh, yeah. university. Oh, yeah. and Obviously, with an upbringing like that, you were always asking questions and learning well, from the I'll beginning. Well, I'll tell you, I, I remember I always asked questions, and I can remember as a little kid sort of climbing onto a chair on my knees, and I was asking questions. And my sister used to always draw a question mark on my forehead and on the tip of my nose, and I'd get so angry. And... Uh, and mother had to say to her, you know, leave him alone. He asks questions. <laughs> we all have to ask questions. Yes. So, uh, but I, I, yeah, I did always ask questions. It was like searching what makes this world go around. Mm-hmm. So obviously today you're, you're a very important member of our community, the Reconstructionist Synagogue here, and, and also... Uh, you've had leadership in the Reconstructionist movement. So what was what was the experience or the reason that you became active in Reconstructionism? Uh, when I first married my wife, my father-in-law wanted to build a, a synagogue, uh, the Anshe Asher, and I helped him. And he prepared a seat with my name on it, my brother-in-law's name on it, 
And, but my wife was upstairs, and so I couldn't take this. So I point to her and signal, let's get out. But my son had to have a bar mitzvah. Hmm. And uh, I had to find a place that I would feel comfortable. And at that point, I heard, this was 1963, 1964, I heard that someone by the name of Levy Becker was starting a new synagogue called the Reconstructionist Synagogue. And I knew Hillel from, from Hillel. Hmm. When I... When I was at McGill, Hillel was, at one point, I think he was actually president of Hillel. And so Hillel saying, was Levy's son? Yeah. Yes. And uh, we uh, uh, sang in the choir, in Yehuda Weinberg's choir together. And uh, so I called Hillel, and I said, what is this you met with him and said, what is this your father's doing? What is... Reconstructionist Judaism about. So you'd never heard of this before? No. Coming from you, that's a shock. <laughs> no, I hadn't. Uh, it just wasn't on the radar at the time. He said, you know, try to explain it. And he says, but you know, why don't you come to a service? And I came, uh, we were going to be meeting for Rosh Hashanah in the uh, Jewish People's School uh, Gymnasium come and join us and I did and as I told uh, Larry Lazar I sat next to his mother and his father and I remember it very clearly I won't repeat here what (laughs) my experience sitting next to his mother but Levy said openly you know we don't believe in a hereafter, so we want our kids to be with us when we say Kaddish uh, um, and when we say uh, Yisker, mm-hmm. whereas in most synagogues they want kids to go out during Yisker. Uh, we want them to see how we pay homage to our ancestors, and that way they'll know to pay homage to their ancestors when we pass away and um, I poked my wife and it said he makes sense there's something here and at one point he said I don't believe in a God I believe in godliness and of course I don't believe in a messiah but I do believe in a messianic age this is what I was waiting to hear. So you must have had a sigh of relief. That yeah, was speaking your yeah, language. Yeah, speaking my language. Yes. So after the service, I called him. I called Levy, and he invited me up to his house, and we sat for about two hours talking about Reconstructionism, Kaplan, hmm. and I said to Kate. This is a place for me. Yes. And uh, that, that was sort of it. And then, and then uh, about two years later, we invited Kaplan to come up and speak at McGill. I think I was sort of behind this, why don't we? And so we did. And again, 
Kaplan impressed me. You know, we went out for coffee afterwards. And he was trying to convince Levy to take on the job of building a uh, Jewish kahila with a new Sanhedrin to... <laughs> and, of course, Levy was listening, but th there was no way at his age he was going to do something like that, although he became for... But this was after became for the Canadian... The World Jewish Congress, the outreach to... Um, small Jewish communities, especially in the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, at that point, we were probably about 25, 30 families, and we grew. Mm -hmm. I stayed. I enjoyed it. I loved Kaplan. That was my first meeting. And then, of course, in 67, uh, we had the convention here in Montreal to officially open our new building. It was here at the, um, the hotel on the Carey where we decided to open a Reconstructionist rabbinical college. And that was a little bit of a battle, mm -hmm. but, but it was carried through. And this, that's where I met Manny Goldsmith mm -hmm. and uh, learned an awful lot from Manny. Mm. And it was my first experience with a uh, with a creative service, mm -hmm. which Manny did. So Manny and I have kept up that correspondence to this very day. Mm -hmm. And we talk about where the community should be going. And, and mm -hmm. So what kind of people beyond yourself were attracted to... The, the synagogue to the, the first reconstruction synagogue here in Montreal. Well, we we had a completely different. Uh, some of these people's children are still here and would like you know remember it as it was at that time. While Levy was here, we did very creative things. I mean, we we uh, started women having Eliot, and that's a long story in itself. We uh, started having speakers between uh, between Musaf and Mincha on uh, on Yom Kippur. We, I mean, people looked at us. Oh, you're Levi Beckershul. Oh, like terrible. So, but so no one else was doing this in town. Not at that time, no. And yeah. then people slowly began to. When it came out of their communities, in the conservative, demanding, hey, why can't we have egalitarian services? Why can't we have women coming up? Why can't we have bat mitzvahs? I mean, even the Orthodox are bat mitzvahs, but not in the synagogue. I mean, it's uh, not in a synagogue service. Yes. Uh, separate uh, Sunday afternoons. Uh, in a lot of ways, if I may say this, we've regressed. Levy was prepared, if, if we would do it, to have a small orchestra for the one-third of the program, which was devotion or um, what, we, what stimulated most people. And we had tremendous discussion periods, uh, was 
the Torah reading was only three aliyot, and that left lots of time for Torah study. But Torah study in relationship to the total community, what was going on in the community, and references to uh, the other five Jewish civilizations, what happened in that period, what happened in the next period, how did all of this come together, and where are we today? So everything was brought up, and, and you walked out feeling that you knew more than what you did when you came in. It wasn't just the feeling of, you know, I've been here, and I feel energized. Mm -hmm. It was stimulation. Well, and you were a true participant in the experience, not just listening, yeah. but asking questions and yeah. learning well, along with the community. Yeah. Yeah. And discussing, yeah. yes. which I hope we can get back to. Yes, we like to discuss. So uh, you, obviously, the Reconstructionist movement and the synagogue, is, at least at one time, were a, a very good fit for your theology. Uh, if you had to describe your theology or lack of theology, your belief uh, when it comes to God, godliness, how would you be, how would you describe it? Religious humanism. Okay. So what does that mean? That's, that might be a complicated concept. Uh, religious, uh, reinterpreting all of scriptures and uh, in the term of this is the human effort to to enhance the life um, in a community, uh, in, um, uh, in a sharing of values and of ideals. Has this belief evolved over time as you've... Of course I, it has, sure it yes. has. In yeah. what ways? Well, look, we can go back to Spinoza. I mean, Spinoza was put in the harem. But Spinoza was always a Jew, always admitted to being a Jew. Uh, he just wanted to change the whole idea of scriptures as coming from a supernatural source. Mm -hmm. I mean, he saw it as developed out of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever has happened after that period is really part of the modern thinking mm -hmm. and uh, I know we have people who truly believe in a supernatural maybe not an anthropomorphic but certainly some type of a supernatural mm -hmm. uh, force yeah maybe there is uh, a, uh, a transcendent in, in the experience of man I mean we don't understand everything as I was driving here a neurologist, a neuroscientist was talking about people that by all, all uh, known science uh, were clinically dead. And then they come back after six months, after 20 years, after 10 years living in clinically dead and can report things that were given to them, testing them when they didn't respond, but to find details. 
And when he asked someone, well, how did you remember all of this? His response was, well, I had nothing else to do but integrate everything that was being said to me. Uh, so he says, uh, science, a lot of science advances strictly by serendipitous happenings. So um, that's the human spirit, the transcendent in the human spirit. We don't understand everything. So even in a religious humanist belief system, there's place for mystery and a sense yeah. of awe and spirituality. Yeah. And awe, yeah, and awe with things which happen as human beings. Yes. They're there, but how did it happen? And, and this man is a scientist, and he says, you know, here's something. We don't understand it yet. We're trying to find it, but here's what happens. So what, what role do you think Jewish community has in this? Can you experience that sense of awe, that sense of connection uh, with the world and our experiences without community? Uh, what role does community, more specifically Jewish community, have in this, this way well, of life? the Jewish community has to realize and that these things happen and has to commit itself to humanism in a sense. Uh, I have very nice neighbors, but they're from the Belzer community. They wear all the Belzer clothes, the black socks, the the payas down to his shoulders, the, uh, the tzitz is hanging out, but he won't look my wife in the face. He won't even talk to her. She will talk to me. Uh, five kids, she's not more than 30, 32, but she's got five kids. I don't know if these kids are going to get a college education. I don't know if they'll be, if they'll have the opportunities to develop as human beings. And this is a responsibility of the whole Jewish community to assure that we are brought into the 21st century so we can go into the, eventually into the 22nd. If there is value in Judaism, that humanist value is what has to be brought out into the fore. Mm -hmm. So everything else that we do has to somehow tie into that. Well, and of course, you're also speaking about Kaplan's idea that we live in two civilizations, that you can't only be Jewish. You, you have to Probably, accept that we live in a secular world, too, with, with yeah, everything well, that Well, we that in Quebec live in three civilizations. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. then, moving forward, you know, what place do you think Jew Judaism, Jewish community has in making sense of a very challenging world, the different civilizations that we live in, with uh, understanding the, the tough truth of, of Jewish community is that for everyone today, except those in a very orthodox community, Judaism truly is a choice. No one has to walk into a synagogue. No one is obligated to accept a Jewish identity or identify as Jewish. So what role do we have? How can we stay relevant as we move forward? Well, I think the most important thing is we have to go to our youth and say, what is it that you find in Judaism which is relevant? How would you like to see Judaism develop for you? Instead of us telling them what they, what they should, should connect be, with and how they should yeah. act. Yes. I mean, look at these. They're with their 
two little fingers, they communicate with the world. And uh, I, I, you know... <laughs> By this, you're speaking of cell phones and texting. Cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> and looking up Google and uh, going to Wikipedia. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, just today, I mean, my, uh, my designer, I want to see something for a project I'm doing in Sudbury. And I wanted to see what was... Uh, he just presses a couple of buttons and he gets Google Earth and, and I have a picture of everything around me there. And and so how do you how do you tie Judaism into this? What's uh, I I attended the the uh, I shouldn't say attended. My wife and I were at the um, Leonard Cohn exhibit at the uh, Musée d'Art Contemporain. And they had uh, the Sarshar Shemayim singing his songs. They, you know, virtual reality. You had uh, one room where you had uh, Leonard Cohn outside in uh, where you, um, hologram. Yes. And they had cars, him observing cars passing and turning around and writing and all with holograms. I mean, think of it. This is, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a picture. It's not a movie. It's a hologram. It, you look at it and you see a three-dimensional picture. What is our three-dimensional picture of the whole world? How do we in a three-dimensional, as Jews... How do we survive? This is really, um, as Judy, if Judaism has values in affirming life and in enhancing life, how do we bring these values to the fore? Mm -hmm. And how do we make our, our children and our grandchildren aware of these values and wish to perpetuate them? So I think what you're saying is essentially going with Mordechai Kaplan's vision, which is as the world throws at us new challenges and uh, new we experiences, evolve. we evolve. We can't yeah, put up we walls. Evolve. We can't We can't stop and, in essence, continue to live yeah. in two dimensions when the world is in three. Three dimensions. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So the movement itself, the Reconstructionist movement, has undergone quite a few changes, uh, especially in the past few years. And... Uh, some of the news of the past few months has been the name change of the Reconstructionist movement. So at one time, uh, it was called Re the Reconstructionist movement, movement, which was a noun, and now it's, it's officially called, called Reconstructing, Reconstructing Judaism. And I know that Mordechai Kaplan, who founded the movement, uh, never really liked the idea of having a separate denomination that um, he was always bothered by the fact that, you know, we're Jewish, we, we are a community, we... We are beyond names. We're beyond the denomination. And now, this with this new name, is this in some ways fulfilling Kaplan's idea? And is, does it serve a purpose? Does it fit with your your vision, your theology, your understanding of what Judaism is? Uh, I accept it. I, I accept it. Uh, I I mean, it's yes. We should be out there reconstructing, uh, constantly reconstructing. I. Not sure where the college is going yet, 
But we'll find out on this convention in a year and a half will be a time to question and we'll see where we're going as a movement. I want to, of course, the movement does as a whole reach out. Uh, It's accepting of all forms of human beings uh, and makes it known. But I think it's still got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. So the name changes, there's the beginning. I hope. Yes. I hope. So if someone was going to ask you then who who you were what kind of what kind of person you identify yourself as would you call yourself a jew a reconstructionist a reconstructing jew is there something beyond those words that you would identify yourself as uh, i would say a, i'm a humanist so you're still a religious humanist as a you religion, said before okay. religious a jew religious jewish humanist okay or religion a jewish <laughs> religious humanist and it might change by the day that people ask you, of course. <laughs> you know, bring us back to this community and maybe the Montreal Jewish community. We have a very unique place being one of the few liberal synagogues in this city. Um, you know, the Canadian Jewish uh, experience, the Canadian Jewish world is very different than that of the U.S. What role do you feel like we have as a community and as individuals who make up this community who have a different way of understanding Judaism. What is our role in this in this city? Our role is to challenge the rest of the Montreal community. And what Just is the challenge? To, well, you know, as I say, when we started, we challenged. We introduced uh, egalitarian services. We And we had to fight some of the women, including the rabbi's wife, on the question of women being called up to the Torah and being fully egalitarian with men, taking aliyot, reading from the Torah. Yes. That was the first place. But uh, uh, the discussion period, uh, eventually Shar Zion started doing that by demand of its, of its congregation. They saw it. Some came here and experienced. We brought in students from McGill who became involved in our discussions, and about three or four of them who became rabbis. Um, we have that role to to challenge, to challenge in de- in a, um, thinking which is changing the the embedded thinking and let it change when we've had this discussion before that uh, the civilizational idea of Judaism that we have is reconstructing Jews is that there are many different pathways into Jewish life and uh, if you're religious then you're welcome if you are religious humanist secular humanist cultural Jew if you're an explorer if you're in an interfaith relationship LGBT you know this is a place and Judaism I think we both feel Judaism is a place that should have a doorway in to, to find some sort of uh, way to be part of the Jewish community. And I've always seen that as part of what we do as a community, but I feel Judaism itself is open enough to, open enough to allow that sort of uh, welcoming space. In, some, in many areas. I mean, but these are new concepts. Uh, it wasn't that open. You bring up the question of Kaplan was against... 
uh, starting uh, a Reconstructionist movement. But Kaplan had a very difficult time at the seminary. I mean, he, there were people who wouldn't talk to him in the elevators. There were really why is that? Well, because he eliminated chosenness. Hmm. I mean, the word chosen, and we brought it back. We never had it before. Yes. We brought it back. So, so even for Kaplan, that was a, a little too much chutzpah too quickly yeah. for people to take. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, he redid the Haggadah. I mean, uh, uh, he, and he said, let there be, and it's in his diaries, let there be many Haggadot. He says, it says, uh, each one of you should feel as though you were personally at, at, uh, at Sinai. What does it mean? Yeah. If you were there, you can report it as you want. Mm -hmm. It gives you an opportunity to report it as, as, as you want. I think I mentioned this to you before, that Kaplan's writings were used in this play about the ending of the Civil War, which took place on the first night of Pesach. Mm. And the Jewish slave owner in his family celebrate the Passover and use Kaplan's Haggadah as their Haggadah. Mm -hmm. But he was raked over the coals because he wrote a new Haggadah. So the feeling was that if his ideas were to be promulgated, it had to be through a separate movement. So, you know, Kaplan, uh, Kaplan was definitely someone who had chutzpah to be able to make oh. statements that were not, uh, not what the Jewish community was hearing at the time from uh, his book, Judaism as a Civilization, to the growth of the movement. Mm -hmm. And you are definitely someone who I and so many other people in this community feel has chutzpah, but also a deep sense of compassion and an ability to, to go with the flow as changes take place in our yeah. community and the world. You try your best to learn about them and accept them and see how it can be something that you take on as a, as a cause or something that you can, that you can support. Well, so what, what does it mean as a lover of Yiddish? <laughs> this word is very important and one of the more well-known Yiddish words, but what does it mean to have chutzpah? And how has, how has that word, that concept been something that you, you've held on to? Religious audacity? I don't know. So you see it through a religious context? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Audacity. Uh, and do you to, feel that you have chutzpah? Is that something you do define yourself? Well, in, in I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about it because I'm just, uh, I, I guess I, I'm doing something right now by way of development in which I'm taking very seriously Canada's uh, commitment to the Paris Accords in which I'm doing a project which is completely net zero power, processing sewage, uh, processing rainwater, um, taking heat out of the sewer, doing a building that's completely committed. And, and there's a social aspect because rents are made so that uh, affordable rents and... Uh, do you really think you can do that? Do you, will it work? And, and it's, yeah, yeah. And so I'm getting these, you're crazy, but go ahead. 
I'd call that chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, and I, um, I got a letter from the former mayor of Sudbury, and he said, God, I've never met a man like you. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it has to be mentioned, last year you were the Khatan uh, yes. Torah for a Simchat Torah celebration, and you went up and spoke your mind about theology, about faith yeah. and community, and uh, I, I remember you were a bit worried about how people would react. Oh, but yes, you got I, a standing ovation, and people, I think, appreciated yeah, they came that you up. spoke to the you spoke you spoke the truth. You spoke your mind, and uh, if nothing else, people really were forced to think about some very important issues. And I think that's well, what that's, you've always done well. That's that's what I really wanted is to think. Oh yeah, IBM gives you a a think pad. Yes, <laughs> yes. So when you use it, think. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I really, yeah, I, I, in fact, I told Kay, I said, and she said, so what? I said, they'll probably throw rotten tomatoes at me for this. But that's, that not, what, that's not what <laughs> happened, no. Was... Yes. In your retirement, which you uh, don't seem to be entering anytime soon, <laughs> no. do you have any, any dreams, any visions? Would you like to stay active in other ways, truly yeah. retire, take mm -hmm. a vacation? Have you thought yeah, that I'd far like ahead? I'd like to change the Jewish community. No, my commitment would be to the Jewish community. Outreach from the Jewish community in the name of the Jewish community. Yes. In other words, uh, you know, and I think of what Kaplan said, you know, uh, being for humanity in general, being for uh, human rights in general, being for laws in general, is like speaking in general without any language in particular. Mm. The language of the Jewish people is our Judaism, and we have to be able to speak out from there. Well, it's a beautiful and, concept. And it's, uh, yeah, and I, and, uh, and another thing which I remember Kaplan, you know, his way of pounding, uh, was, uh, how did he say it? Uh, if live in the world of the ought, uh, what this what what ought the synagogue be like? What ought Judaism be like? What what ought prayers be like? Because the moment you say ought, you have a responsibility to work towards making that ought a reality. Yes, and these are things. I, I I want to make Judaism in my image. I'm not mm -hmm. Kaplan, but I want to make it in that commitment image. And that well, you've been doing a good job so far. So beyond um, beyond your Jewish activism, as as in these uh, next years of your journey, do you have other other dreams, trips you'd like to take? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I uh, I do. I've got to get to know Canada better. I. Uh, that's number one. You mm -hmm. know, so you'd like, the, like to do some traveling? Yeah, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, working up in Sudbury and moving out from there, I've been west on the 407 and uh, 117, I'm sorry, 117. Um, I'd like to get further. I'd like to go further north. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see around the Hudson's Bay. I'd like to... 
I'd like to see Labrador. I'd like mm. to see uh, because uh, Iceland. Uh, I've been to Europe. I've seen Europe. Uh, I've been to Israel. I've got to get back to Israel. I feel very strongly. Yeah. So anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, I want to work with you to change things here in the synagogue mm. to, to maybe even have a couple of our young kids who play music, play music during a service. Uh, I'd like to see more music put in, and really, I really, I don't know how we can do it, but get back to three aliyot and more discussion. And I'd like to see us have guest speakers at least once a month. Mm -hmm. Someone who talks about Jewish affairs, about what's happening in the community. Well, those all sound like good ideas to me. Yeah. Well, Jack, I thank you for sharing your story, and I hope that your creative uh, ideas keep flowing and that you continue to have the chutzpah to, to speak the truth <laughs> and to make a difference in the Jewish community and in the wider, mm -hmm. wider world. And uh, I hope that your story is inspiring to other people, too. I hope so. I hope that we can get more people to look at their Judaism and say, how do I make it meaningful for others? It's important. If it has any importance in the world. Yes, it's, it's a lot of work ahead of us, but I, I think we can do it. I hope that you enjoyed our first episode of A Jewish Life. We'll be continuing to share more stories in upcoming episodes, and I'm excited to begin this journey with you. If you are interested in sharing your story on our podcast, or if you have comments on the show, you can always contact me at boris at ajewishlife.org, or find me on Facebook at A Jewish Life. Your story, your journey, is part of our story, and I look forward to getting to know you on A Jewish Life.